Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to The Critic podcast. From consumerism and urban growth to becoming the first industrialising nation and permitting a level of free speech and press that would be envied elsewhere in Europe, Hanoverian Britain sets trends that others would later follow. Why so? In this podcast, The Critic's political editor, Graham Stewart, talks about what made Georgian Britain a trendsetter with Professor Jeremy Black, whose books on the 18th century include Walpole and Power, George II, Puppet of the Politicians, Pitt the Elder, and George III, Madness and Majesty. A lot of people think of the Victorian age as the high point of the frosting entrepreneur innovation, industrialisation in Britain. Thinking perhaps of the 18th century as more a time that starts with periwigs and tinkling harpsichords and ends in the genteel manners of a Jane Austen novel. Professor Jeremy Black, should we see the 18th century as the true age of innovation? Well, I think each century can claim a um, a process of innovation. And I don't think that they're involved in some sort of battle. But I think you're absolutely right in your starting point that um, the 19th century often presented itself as progressive and reforming by reference to a caricature of the preceding age. And let me say, in case this seems very historical, you can see the same sort of thing in more recent times when the 1960s presented itself as a period of innovation against a supposedly static and stagnant 1950s, which was certainly not how the 1950s should be seen. But anyway, back to the 18th century. Um, In the 18th century, obviously, there are elements of continuity, just as there are elements of continuity in any period. Um, And there was continuity in much of the material nature of life, in much of the circumstances in which people uh, lived and worked. But there were also dramatic changes, some of those changes significant just in Britain itself, some of them important in the wider world. And indeed, um, you know, we possibly ought to put at the very outset the fact that the 18th century and its role in British history is very much to the fore at the moment with reference to both slavery and the very separate question of empire. But if I might just focus on possibly the most significant aspect of change in the 18th century, it is that from the mid-18th century onwards, we begin the period which we're still in of continual population growth. And that, in a sense, is one of the more important changes. Um, It's one which means that you have literally in the second half of the century more producers, more consumers than ever before. And it's a process which we're still living in today. And, of course, the middle of the 18th century is also the period when the Industrial Revolution starts to manifest itself. Um, Is it right to draw a direct correlation between 
population growth, continual population growth and the start of industrialization? Well, I would be shouted at by any economic historian if I let you go away with the phrase that it started in the mid 18th century. I mean, there were industrial uh, growth from earlier than that. I mean, coal based industrialization certainly was gathering pace from the 16th century. And as you may know, there are there is a lot of debate among economic historians about um, the significance of aggregate as opposed to selective development, the extent to which there was takeoff in the 18th century, and also the extent to which, in many respects, uh, comparable or more important developments don't occur until the 19th. But having said all that, Graham, uh, I would rather... Um, link the change in population to two factors. One that's very much to do with human activity, and that is the um, the strength of British agricultural production. I mean, the, the use of the term revolution is much overloaded, and historians throw it around like a scattergun. But you know, as you probably know, there is the idea of the agricultural revolution, which both raised production but also ensured that there could be more production from a smaller percentage of the population, thus releasing labour uh, for work in other factors, and particularly industry, but also in transport. Um, so that element is important. I also think, and this is an area, this next area is one I'm not so um, conversant with, but I also think we should be probably looking at changes in epidemic diseases, uh, both in the uh, virulence of the diseases and in the human response to them. And that might sound a very modern tone or issue at the present moment. And I, I'm just returning to your point about uh, reform in agriculture. The, the Obviously, there were innovations, seed drills and so on. But, but um, the enclosure acts, how significant were they in permitting this increase in population? Well, enclosure itself was very significant. Um, it was a longer term process than just simply parliamentary legislation. But it also rests on what, in a sense, is the shared capital of the countryside. Now, obviously, by modern egalitarian uh, notions, it's not very satisfactory. Uh, but in terms of comparing the situation in Britain in the 18th century with that in the rest of Europe, let alone the rest of the world, you have a situation of shared benefit between, as it were, the ultimate landowner and the tenant farmers. And this shared benefit is quite significant in fostering an environment within which innovations in agricultural practice can then um, take, uh, you know, be, be as it were introduced. So I think that's very important. Enclosure is a different way to manage the land space. If you are using poor agricultural technique, enclosure itself doesn't help you. But the combination of enclosure improve, and improved agricultural technique. And indeed, I would also say that what's very significant is another one of these erstwhile revolutions, the transport revolution. Because if you're going to produce more goods, then the very fact that you have an effective system, a spreading effective system of turnpike roads, 
uh, particularly from the 1740s and 50s, and as well a system of can canals and canalised rivers, means that more produce can be taken to market with less of a disruption uh, through spoilage en route. Is the nature of land ownership and more broadly property rights, are they in any real way different in Britain than they were elsewhere in continental Europe? Yes, I would argue that they were. I think the rule of law was an absolutely crucial aspect of British society. Now, again, um, as you will know, and if you look at literature from the 60s on and works by people like E.P. Thompson, and there are other scholars as well, many people have drawn attention to the fact that the law uh, benefited most those who had access to it. Um, its expertise, shall we say. Uh, but jury trials uh, were reasonably effective. Um, there's quite a lot of work that has shown that uh, the process of justice was also open to poor people. Uh, and more particularly, you asked the specific question of the comparison between Britain and the continent. And uh, seigneurial jurisdiction, the jurisdiction of the landlord, uh, was less in Britain than is the case uh, in most of continental Europe. And of course, Britain also has this metropolis in London, gets much larger in the 19th century, but already in the 18th century, it's one of the largest cities in, in the world. Um, what a consequence did having such a large commercial centre have, do you think, in, in the larger economic development of the country? Well, I think it's very important. I mean, may I say, I mean, you pointed out it got larger in the 19th century, and you're absolutely correct. But in relative terms, I would say that London is, is you know, really very, very significant indeed in the 18th century, when, for example, cities such as Manchester are, are relatively small. Um, in 1700, I think I'm right in saying London had more than half a million people, which I think I'm right in saying is nearly 10% of the English population. It's a pre-census age. And that's more than all the other English towns together. And only five of the other English towns had more than 10,000 people in 1700. I think it's Norwich, Bristol, Newcastle, um, Exeter, where I, of course I live, and York. So, it, yes, London is extraordinarily important. Um, it's the forcing house of a sense of change. Um, it's the um, centre of uh, financial uh, organisation of companies, whether you're thinking of trading companies such as the East India Company, um, whether you're thinking of, for example, London-based insurance companies such as the Sun Fire Office. Um, and it's a, uh, it has a dominant role as the centre of government, the law, consumption, the world of print, politics, uh, the legislature, the executive, the judiciary. I mean, you know, I could go on. Um, uh, indeed, I once wrote a history of London in which I did go on at some considerable length. Um, but yes, London is a very important aspect of British life in um, the 18th century. It was the most populous city in Europe or the Americas by 1800. And, you know, foreigners who visited the country, people like Voltaire or Montesquieu, um, were fascinated by it. Um, Thomas Jefferson, for example, later in the 1780s. Um, and it has the shock of the new. 
Um, I think that's very important. In a way, it's like New York in the 1930s or maybe Shanghai in the 2000s. And the shock of the new is people, if you look at what tourists came to London to see, um, they were primarily interested in things that have been thrown up since the late 17th century. So Greenwich, for example, the Bank of England, um, uh, the new bridges across the Thames, Westminster Bridge, the second bridge across the Thames, for example, uh, new institutions such as the uh, British Museum. Uh, I mean, that's what they're primarily interested in. It's a cityscape of the new. I mean, much of which we can still see today in the so-called West End. Um, so uh, it's not surprising that this was seen as a space in which new ideas flourished. And to give you an instance of one that still uh, persists to the present day, uh, Freemasonry began in uh, modern Freemasonry began in Britain in London in 1717. Now, foreigners uh, were intellectuals and uh, Enlightenment figures were most interested in the freedom of publication, the freedom of thought, the way in which religious minorities could thrive and coexist there. So the very fact that um, although they didn't have full civil rights, people such as nonconformists, Catholics, Jews could all be found readily and were not uh, at risk of uh, punishment, as would have been the case in much of continental, particularly Catholic Europe, very much interested foreigners and was seen as making a distinctive nature of British society. So also with the idea that if you were a part, if you were, as it were, genteel, so this did not include everybody, and it was classically male-centered as well, um, you know, there were activities, whether you're thinking of the Royal Society or the Masonic Lodges or the New World of pay-for-culture um, assembly rooms, uh, subscription concerts, and so on, in which um, it wasn't terribly important necessarily that the person sitting next to you might have a greater or lesser social rank, because the theory was that you were all there as gentlemen and therefore all entitled to be there. Now, to us, this might still appear today to be a very, um, you know, sort of ridiculously um, sort of structured world, an unfair world. <laughs> of course, I mean, I always find it hilarious listening to people today uh, beating up on the 18th century when many of these same people you know have made urgent efforts to ensure that they don't share public spaces with those they dislike or when they, you know that they've spent much effort to purchase houses that would put them in a different um, school uh, catchment area but we'll leave that one side this kind the, the the social elements of snobbery and one-upmanship have always existed and always been rather laughable the point is that in the 18th century there was an attempt obviously it has its weaknesses but there was an attempt to create the idea that to be genteel was not a matter of birth but was a matter of conduct and that, I think, was a very important um, 
development indeed. And it was encapsulated for contemporaries by things like, for example, the hanging of an earl in the 1760s for murder. And they, you know, they were very proud of this. It showed that everybody was under the law. Um, now, um, again, as I've said, we can be dubious about some elements of it, but it was certainly striking. And indeed, I think we could take this a stage further if you are thinking of that in terms of whatever you mean by social progress, I think you could say that in the 18th century, that was certainly um, much in evidence. And I'm, you know, there were differences in the 19th century, but I would be, I would hesitate to say that uh, the 19th century society was necessarily more open to talent than its 18th century counterpart. Well, I'd like to explore a little bit further this theme of uh, equality under the law and uh, civil rights, political rights um, as well. Um, obviously, compared to now, there, there are you know, a, a, a huge number of very obvious differences, uh, not least the, the favouritism given to, to Anglicans. Um, uh, but can you? Well, I wouldn't say it's favoritism. It was a legal situation. Yes. <laughs> I mean, there okay. was yeah. there was a you know there was a state church. I mean, we can stand that on its head if you like. There was a state church, but those who were not members of the state church still had an ability to make a livelihood and to you know conduct themselves in most affairs with complete equality and now you know they might not be able to become members of parliament i'm not sure that was necessarily the worst thing in life is there an argument for saying that many of the innovators in the late 18th century were uh, from a nonconformist background is there an argument for suggesting that uh, the fact that they um, unless covered by an indemnity act, they weren't standing for, for public office and you know, often weren't going to the great public schools and so on. They had their own uh, academies. It, it, was this a seedbed for them to be entrepreneurs rather than, than civil servants? Well, that's an interesting distinction. I mean, I would I'd be very loath to say that Anglicans were not necessarily entrepreneurs and one can think of quite a few who were. I mean, clearly there there was a nonconformist culture which was very uh, output orientated, uh, very much focused on both uh, what the individual could achieve, but also within a community basis of what they could then put back into society. And indeed, the Unitarians and nonconformists of the late 18th and early 19th century were very similar in some respects to the Jews of the 20th century. I'm not sure that I would, you know, I think a lot of this is to do with where you put the emphasis, where you put the context and where you put the comparison. And as we know uh, from the present day and the so-called history wars of the present day or culture wars or just general sort of nature of society, a lot of people are unwilling to think in contextual terms or comparative terms. I mean, I've got a quote here, which I've dug up from John Trevor, who was the long-standing British uh, diplomat in Turin. So that's the capital of what the state, the largest independent Italian state of the period, and he wrote, uh, the this is from 1792, the misfortune is that in this country the whole society is divided into two classes, the court and nobility and the bourgeoisie. And the line between them is 
drawn is so rude and marked that the two parties have long been jealous and might too easily become hostile. He then goes on to say, there are none of those intermediate shades which blend the whole together into one harmonious mass as in our happy country. Now, you might doubt that there was always happiness and foreign travelers who I mentioned earlier praising things were also, for example, horrified by some aspects such as drunkenness and violence, um, uh, which they saw in British society. Um, but I think that the comparative context is an interesting one. Uh, you know, not all religious uh, nonconformists in the 18th century turned to entrepreneurialism, but the context was such that those who did turn to entrepreneurialism did not find themselves persecuted. And that, I think, was very different to the situation across much of the world for religious minorities in that period, and indeed, one might say, today. Aside from um, religious distinctions, what could a 18th century Englishman, and we will come to women in, in a moment, but what could an 18th century Englishman do in uh, Britain that, that he couldn't do uh, in most of the larger countries of Europe at the time? Well, it depends whether he's going to be a Protestant or a Catholic, and it depends upon his wealth. But... Um, if you're looking, for example, at the fact that we are having a conversation in which we are not assuming that there is going to be any censorship applied to us, if you or I or both of us make critical remarks about the government, that was something that would easily be possible in 18th century Britain, that you could do that, and indeed uh, press denunciations of the government, and indeed those in the House of Commons, uh, were pretty uh, strident by any terms, and one might note that um, in terms of for example, criticisms in wartime, there was much more criticism in wartime of British governments than there were to be in either world wars. And that was despite the fact that wars like the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars or earlier the Seven Years War, the War of the Austrian Succession, were absolutely backs to the wall wars for Britain. So in some respects, society was freer. I mean, you know, um, it would have perplexed shall we put it mildly, um, the majority of 18th century English people um, to see how modern uh, Britons allow themselves to be constrained by government regulations. I mean, you cannot imagine uh, that much of um, the uh, edicts of society and, that are, and the restrictions on individuals that are regarded as normative today, um, much of them would have been regarded as absolutely ridiculous in the 18th century. And of course, as you know, there's been a lot of controversy recently about, you know, the, the, the idea about slaves, Britain's not being slaves. And obviously that that stage, Britain was a leading um, slave running, slave trading, um, and in, in its, some of its colonies, not all of them, um, slave owning society. But if you're looking at the domestic situation, which is what they were talking about or singing about in the notion that Britain shouldn't be slaves, what they are doing in the 18th century is contrasting themselves with continental Europe. 
Um, and the notion in particular being that slavery is a matter not so much of one individual owning another, which is how we tend to think of slavery, because we take a commercial and uh, or capitalist approach to slavery, but, and I pointed this out in my history of slavery, there's an entirely separate, not more important, but not less important tradition of slavery, as slavery being people who are under the control of the state. Now, sometimes very onerously so, as in modern North Korea, or if you were in a Soviet gulag in the uh, 20th century, sometimes um, less uh, arduously so. But that was what people were thinking about in the 18th century, the notion that if you were under the equivalent of the rule of the French or Spanish Bourbon, or, and this is the point of the specific song, the Jacobites, if they came back again, um, that you would be um, a, a slave because your civil uh, rights and your civil privileges, liberties, would be constrained. Um, now, uh, it's the difficulty we now have is that most people today look at the past and think of it simply as uh, as a matter for um, debate in terms of present day values. Well, they may that may be uh, illuminating. It may well be. Um, helpful for people. It's certainly glib and facile, and uh, a whole host of people who are very glib and facile. But the one thing it doesn't really do is tell you how people thought in the past. And that's really the interesting point, isn't it? Many people with uh, looking at the 18th century from a, a modern perspective will wonder why uh, your average Briton, uh, who, um, you know, well, if she was a woman, wouldn't, wouldn't have had political rights, but if she was a man, most likely uh, wouldn't have exercised the vote. They, they, they wonder why uh, Britons of that period thought they were so free when actually... Uh, that you know the, the likelihood is to use a modern term they didn't have political agency. Why did they think they were so free? Well, first of all, they didn't see the same. They didn't see political agency in the same definition as people do um, today. We can have a debate. Maybe you could get me on to discuss the nature of political agency and political freedom in the present day, and I'd be quite happy to offer you a historical perspective on that. But in terms of the 18th century, first of all. Um, their notion was that parliamentary government was representational. In other words, you were represented in it even if you didn't have the vote. We actually still have the same view. In other words, uh, I haven't voted for the, the person who is presently the member of parliament for Exeter, but I regard him as my member of parliament, if you see what I mean. So the very fact you, you don't actually have to vote for somebody today to feel that they are representing you. The same notion existed in the 18th century. The key thing was the idea that Parliament existed and that the British had shown their desire for parliamentary rule by throwing out the, the Stuarts and then by keeping the Jacobites, uh, or the Stuarts in, the, in the, their exiled sense of the Jacobites, out. So that's point number one. Uh, point number two, the majority, the vast majority of the population was Protestant, and there was a belief that Protestantism was uh, the religion of liberty and freedom, and this was contrasted with Catholicism, which was widely seen as a religion 
conducive to tyranny and also one that was ultimately irrational with the tyranny, totally separate tyranny that that represented. Three, as you've correctly said, the notion of the rule of law and um, that rule of law was one that uh, foreigners very much noted as being something that the British were very proud of. Um, and um, given the extent to which society at that period was very little policed, you could actually say that people were freer then uh, than they are now, uh, which may be an interesting way to look at things. Um, and you can then take uh, uh, other elements. The uh, Obviously, not everybody could read. We know that. Although we also know that newspapers, and again, as you will know, I've written several books on newspaper history, newspapers were read aloud at taverns. You didn't need to actually read a newspaper to to know what was in it. The idea that there was freedom of expression, that was something that was very much um, uh, regarded as important, the end of um, uh, pre-publication censorship. And that's the same world we're in now. We have post-publication censorship. You or I could say something that was true, but if we couldn't prove it, we might be, you know, get into trouble for it. But we don't have to, in advance, have our script cleared by any uh, any um, any sort of censor. So we're essentially in an 18th-century world in that perspective. And other aspects. I mean, the 18th century had a notion of a balanced constitution that the neither the crown, the uh, the uh, executive authorities, agencies, the government, if you like, um, the House of Lords, the House of Commons, or the judiciary, neither of them were supreme over the others in practical terms. And that, again, was something that was very important, but also rather unusual in global terms in that period. So it's not surprising that the British considered themselves, and here you have, as you say, this paradox that the majority of people did not have the vote. And on top of that, there are slaves in the colonies, not all the colonies, but you know, in the colonies. Um, and yet, despite that, they saw themselves as a free society. Now, um, people today will facilely say, oh, they were hypocrites, etc., and we should you know, neglect them. Maybe they'll get round to uh, some fresh bout of ignorant iconoclasm. But the reality is that the ambiguity of life and the, the ability of human beings to retain in their own mind contradictory ideas or what seemed to others, maybe even to themselves as contradictory. That is the nature of humans as both as individuals and as societies. And to ignore that is to really be very, very, very ignorant, which I'm afraid is what a lot of the public discussion at the present moment is. Well, the subject of ignorance brings me to uh, the subject of education. Uh, how literate uh, was 18th century Britain, and what distinction would be made between uh, uh, primary level schooling uh, for uh, boys and girls? Well, uh, how do you measure literacy? Sure, let's start with that very, very basic one, which uh, is a really difficult one, which, uh, I mean, I myself have, have uh, you know, as you know, my books on the... Uh, on the um, Press, I've actually found grave difficulty. If you mean, I, I like to distinguish between what I call um, practical literacy um, in the sense of an ability to actually 
uh, read a newspaper and what might be called an ordinary definition of literacy, which is a level and ability to uh, sign your name. But if you want some statistics, um, if you're looking at, for example, rural Dorset, not too far from where I am at the moment, in the second half of the 18th century, literacy there was an average of 56%. But, as a, in, in, you know, to give you an example of how different the situation could be, in West Sussex, in precisely the same period, the general literacy level for brides was between 15 to 25% lower than that for grooms. So it depends upon whether you're looking at men or uh, women. And what the scholar referred to as totally illiterate marriages, that's their phrase, seldom formed more than one-fifth to one-quarter of the total. Now, by totally illiterate, what they mean is neither of them being able to, um, to sign their name. Um, going back to your bigger question, girls in the rural population have fewer educational uh, opportunities than boys and town dwellers. So again, it depends upon whom one's talking about. Um, partly, you're also affected by the extent to which there's philanthropy. In other words, um, are there charity schools? So. Uh, the SPCK, the Society for the Promotion of Christian Knowledge, which was established in 1698, was really keen on founding uh, charity schools. And um, I think in Lincolnshire, uh, in the first quarter of the century, about 63 were founded. But, you know, a lot of those schools were all fairly, that, that sounds great, and it is great, but those schools were all fairly small, and there are you can find parishes where, uh, there aren't necessarily um, such institutions. Um, then on top of that, you often find in little communities sort of what were known as dame schools, um, which were generally run by widows or elderly women. And they provided reading, writing and arithmetic, um, only the reading usually being given free. Now, that was very different to the grammar schools. So partly it's a question of when you ask about education, what level you're talking about, whether you're talking about for boys or girls, and um, whether you're talking about urban and rural. The key difference to the situation established um, in the late 19th century is that education wasn't supported by uh, taxation, either central taxation or local taxation. So there's no equivalent of the Forced Education Act, for example. Um, and again, by our standards, this is um, not acceptable um, because obviously, as you know, we're a society which has very high levels of literacy and where everybody goes to school. Um, but the sorry, I'm being I can't help myself being slightly facetious. I've been working too long. Um, but the the practicalities of what could probably be afforded in the 18th century and the nature of what that society uh, would have regarded as reasonable is you know is one in which they had an educational system that, in their terms, was fit for purpose. Um, just to add one other sort of variant, uh, I think it's fair to say that um, although free education was available to only a minority of Scottish school children, free or low-cost education um, was possibly more, in Scotland, possibly more widespread than is the case 
in England, and there seems to have been a stronger tradition of obligation to provide education to all. And many, certainly parishes in the lowlands, had you know schools and schoolmasters funded by the local uh, landowners and uh, and their tenants. Um, I'm glad you've mentioned Scotland because it, it brings me seamlessly on to the Scottish Enlightenment, um, particularly in Edinburgh, but but also in in Glasgow. There is this intellectual movement. Is it something that's very distinctively Scottish or something which must be seen in a British context or indeed in terms of a, a larger European intellectual discussion which just happened for whatever reasons to be focused in Scotland? Well, uh, Graham, I'm going to say all three, which may not be what you want to hear. Um, first of all, uh, can I just say that um, the notion of the Enlightenment in Britain being largely Scottish, which would have been a normative notion when you and I were going through university, I think it's fair to say has been exploded for about two decades. The key work there was Roy Porter, the late Roy Porter's work on the English Enlightenment, and we now have a much stronger sense about the nature and importance of Enlightenment in England. So that's not incompatible. It doesn't lessen the achievements of the Scottish Enlightenment figures, but it just puts it in a different context. Um, and as you correctly say, there is also Enlightenment. Again, the same process has occurred on the continent. You know, when, um, as it were, when I was starting off and people looked at the Enlightenment on the continent, they very largely talked about the philosophe in um, France or the Aufklärung in Germany, but now we would devote more attention as well to noting Enlightenment circles in Italy, for example, in Poland, and indeed um, in various forms across continental Europe. Um, so I think it's fair to say that the Scottish Enlightenment is still impressive, but it doesn't sit there as an isolated um, group of individuals um, isolated other than within Scotland, as it might have done in the past, and as some Scots today still like to imagine it. And I think if, if the listeners can take anything um, uh, on the discussion of the Enlightenment, I would urge them to look at works on the English Enlightenment, because these are really interesting. On Also, they interact with topics such as provincial culture in England, the development of um, a much more reading society. And of course, the 18th century sees um, the growth of the press. Uh, first English daily newspaper is the Daily Courant in 1701. It sees the development of a very distinctly British literary form in the novel. I mean, obviously, there are you know, progenitors on the continent. I'm well aware of that. But the novel is very much something that's seen as distinctly English. Um, and I think it's fair to say that you have a strong and vibrant culture across England as well as in Scotland. And I, I fear sometimes that people are intent on minimising the, the vibrancy of uh, English culture in the uh, 18th century. And again, I'm <laughs> it's difficult for me because I don't want to just talk about my own books, but I did do a book on, on English culture in the 18th century in which what I did, which I thought, you know, is just an attempt to do it slightly differently, is I looked at different circles of patronage. So the landed elite, church, the middling orders, the poor, as well as uh, the particular artistic forms and the interplay between cosmopolitanism and xenophobia. 
And I mean, I'm very struck by, you referred earlier to entrepreneurialism at the very beginning when you were talking about the Industrial Revolution. But you know, and here both Scotland and England have this in common, there is enormous entrepreneurialism, for example, in publishing, in writing, um, and authorship, whether your authorship of newspapers or authorship of books, is very much market-driven rather than being driven by patronage. And in fact, in many senses, um, that is, again, a very distinctive feature of uh, 18th century English society as opposed to society on most of the continent. The Dutch generally are freer than most of, other, the, of, most of the other European uh, cultures. Um, and I think that it's, it, it's worth thinking about this because um, part of the dynamism of British society is the generation of new ideas and again, and you know, again, one doesn't want to dwell simply in a negative fashion on the present day. But when you're seeing at the present moment a sort of closing of the mind uh, in modern day Britain, with the a lot of notions being regarded as unacceptable and therefore not to be taught or discussed or whatever, um, it's really rather encouraging to look back to the example of the. 18th century and to see a very much more dynamic intellectual world um, in which there are very different traditions in terms of writing, in terms of argumentation, in terms of political and religious debate um, that, that help to keep this situation one of flexibility to new ideas and new practices. And in a way, you know, the, the interesting thing about uh, Britain at the end of the century is this. Um, you know, it, Britain is often referred to as an ancien regime, and in a sense, the idea is that somehow it's anachronistic, and this anachronism is to be swept away in the 19th century. But that approach has two, well, has a number of flaws, but two flaws that are worth sticking absolutely at the front, which is a simple one. If it was so bloody awful and anachronistic a regime, how on earth was it able to see off the French revolutionaries and Napoleon? After all, it is not, you know, it is not um, the, the triumph of radicalism that is the, uh, the forefront in that period. And second of all, what people tend to underrate is the capacity of ancien regime and conservative societies in that period, certainly the British one, to actually be able to generate new ideas. So if you look at the specific response to the French Revolution and Napoleon between 1795 and 1805, the British introduce, uh, for the first time for themselves, a national census. They have the Act of Union with Ireland. Um, they're pushing through the mapping of the country by the Ordnance Survey. They're introducing income tax. They're regulating, albeit not to the satisfaction of many of those concerned, uh, labor relations, etc., etc. So this is scarcely a stagnant society. And by the way, they're doing all of that and keeping going with parliamentary government and elections in a way that, as you know, we didn't keep elections going, national elections going during the world wars. So, and you know, you can find earlier instances of this. I mean, British governments fall um, during the uh, War of the Spanish Succession, the War of the Austrian Succession, the Seven Years' War, and the War of American Independence. Um, 
And there is a, a degree of flexibility there that I think is instructive. Now, we need much more time to discuss this. And there is ambiguity and there's contextualization. And, I'm, and you know and I know that these are difficult issues that require greater debate. But the point is that even in this introductory talk, what we can actually see is the idea that this is in some way a redundant society, the one you referred to as dominated by periwigs, um, is, I think, you know, flawed. And again, if you want to look at other aspects of dynamism towards the end of our period, we've got the growth of romanticism and indeed looping back to what we were talking about or what I was trying to talk about at the very beginning, we've got the ending of the slave trade. Um, and we've also got uh, earlier, of course, we've got the development of Methodism, if you're looking for other not novelties of the period. Um, but also we've got the um, some of them desirable, some of them undesirable by modern standards. But we've got the attempts to create new systems of imperial governance, particularly uh, the India Acts, which, again, you know, may not be to the uh, to the pleasure of uh, of present day debates about empire, but offered in the context of the 18th century, like the earlier Quebec Act, where people were considering how to adjust to a colony which had obviously a majority Catholic population, but they represented attempts to understand um, how to work a uh, multi-ethnic, multi a religious empire, obviously to the benefit of Britain, but without it being um, a empire that was, you know, because the British had this notion, which again we can discuss in the case of slavery, rests on deeply flawed foundations in some respects. Um, but they did have this notion that their empire was different to that and freer than that of uh, comparable empires elsewhere. Well, a number of themes to pick up uh, for another day. It's often said that the 18th century is now understudied at schools and on undergraduate level. But Professor Jeremy Black, I think you've given a very clear indication of what an age. Graham, of... it is understudied. If people want to listening want to read, they can read my 18th century Britain, or I have my new biography of George III coming out shortly. But I think the point thing is the point thing is this: you can actually walk around and see remains of the 18th century in much of the townscapes of Britain. You can see it in field patterns that are created by enclosures. You could see it in road routes or canals, which are still there made by the 18th century. The 18th century is a society which in some respects is close enough to us to be misleading, because they weren't the same as us, but close enough also that we can grasp their influence on us. And to that extent, as well as many others, the 18th century has an element of modernity about it, that it is close to us, doesn't mean it's better or worse as a result. It has an element of modernity about it, and it is the first of the modern centuries. Well, we're recording this podcast from a writing desk which was made in the 1770s, so uh, I'm not sure how much 21st century furniture will be around in, in another 300 years' time. Professor Jeremy Black, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.
www.thepodcastshow.co.uk.